Welcome to Suite 212, a new series here on Resonance 104.4 FM that looks at the arts in their social, political and historical contexts, broadcasting on the third Monday of every month. The programme aims to find space for not just works of art and culture, but also political perspectives that we feel are absent from mainstream media and from other arts coverage. And in case you're wondering, the name Sweet 212 is drawn from a film by the American-Korean media pioneer and video artist Nam June Pike, which I thoroughly recommend watching. I think we've got a very special show here today. I have three guests joining me to discuss the cultural legacy of the Second Russian Revolution, which took place in October 1917. Maria Chehanadsky is a philosopher and critic. She received her PhD in philosophy from the Centre for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University in London and works on the problem of Soviet epistemologies across Marxist philosophy, literature and art. She has written a number of texts on Soviet philosophy, art theory and post-Soviet politics and has contributed to Radical Philosophy, South Atlantic Quarterly, Moscow Art Magazine and Alphabeta 2, amongst others. She occasionally curates and works in collaboration with artists, and her last exhibition, Shadow of a Doubt, curated together with Ilya Budraitskis, was dedicated to the problem of conspiracy and held in Moscow in, 19, in 2014. Uh, she lives and works in both London and Moscow. I'm also joined by Owen Hathley, who was born in Southampton in 1981. He received a PhD in 2011 from Birkbeck, for a thesis on constructivism and Americanism, which was published in 2016 by Pluto Press as The Chaplin Machine. He's written for Architectural Review, The Calvert Journal, Dezine, The Guardian, London Review of Books and The New Humanist, and published several books, including A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, A New Kind of Bleak, and The Ministry of Nostalgia, All with Verso. But perhaps most germane to today's show is his epic Landscapes of Communism, published in 2015 by Penguin, who will also issue his forthcoming Trans-Europe Express. And then finally, Ilya Rogachevsky is a Moscow-born multimedia artist, journalist and broadcaster based in London. His critical writing has appeared in various publications, including The Wire, The Quietus, the British Library European Studies blog and the Nabokov Online Journal. Uh, He's a regular contributor here at Resonance 104.4 FM and Resonance Extra, and presently, he's assistant curator at Eclectic, a multidisciplinary art space based in Lambeth here in London. Uh, I want to thank all three of my guests for agreeing to join me at such short notice and for promptly replying to my emails with always with the things I'd actually asked for. Um, this, this may be a, a first in radio or at least something rare, uh, but it certainly uh, enabled me to get together, I think, a really interesting discussion at very short notice. So hello to all three of you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, to to launch into uh, this discussion, of the two revolutions that occurred in Russia in 1917, it was the second that radically changed the nature of global politics and culture. For many artists, writers and filmmakers, the fall of Nicholas II and the swift replacement of the Liberal Prime Minister Alexander Kerensky with Lenin's Bolshevik Party and its dictatorship of the proletariat 
represented an exciting opportunity. Having developed their radical ideas and avant-garde units in opposition not just to the Tsar, but to fin de siècle as the artistic movements, which had been heavily influenced by French symbolism, and had been reluctant to engage with the grim realities of Russian society even during the carnage of the First World War, the Bolshevik seizure of power, and particularly the appointment of the sympathetic Anatoly Lunacharsky as People's Commissar of Education, offered them the chance to realise their ambitions as part of the construction of a visionary new society. Many of the works created in the decades either side of October 1917 became cornerstones of modernist culture, admired worldwide for their intellectual and ideological force. Film was famously central to the Soviet project, in a country that was not entirely literate. Lenin called it the most important of all the arts, and Lev Kuleshov's theories about montage, taken by Sergei Eisenstein as a visual representation of the Marxist dialectical view of history, formed a basis for an astonishingly vibrant culture that produced many of the greatest films of the 1920s. In visual art, the suprematist and constructivist schools were hugely influential, the scale of their ambition epitomised by Vladimir Tatlin's extraordinary and ultimately unbuilt monument to the Third International. In literature, the pre-revolutionary Russian futurist desire to move beyond, and indeed to destroy, the works of Russia's great 19th century authors, notably including Pushkin, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and their opposition to the formal conservatism of their contemporaries, such as Leonid Andreev or Maxim Gorky, was translated into work that celebrated the revolution and explored a symbiotic relationship between poetry and politics. During the new economic policy period that followed the Russian Civil War in 1917 to roughly 1922, in which a certain amount of market capitalism was permitted as a transitional measure, a limited amount of criticism of the Soviet government was allowed, usually from a socialist perspective. This was notable in late 1920s novels such as Yuri Olish's Envy and The Naked Year by Boris Pilniak, as well as Vladimir Mayakovsky's 1928 play The Bedbug, which anticipated the harsh, effect, harsh effects on artistic freedom that would come with Stalin's seizure of absolute power in the late 1920s, following the death of Lenin in January 1924. This complex, fertile and often tragic first 20 years of Soviet art and culture have been extensively studied, um, including by Owen and myself at differing levels of academia, but the 100th anniversary of October 1917 provides another springboard to reassess them, as well as to ask why the Soviet art and culture that followed Nikita Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalinism in a famous speech of 1956 has attracted far less attention. We're going to start by discussing the avant-garde after the revolution and trace a line through to Gorbachev, Glasnost at the end of the USSR in 1991. And if we have time, some of the UK retrospectives on this work and what they tell us about how Soviet art and culture are perceived in the West as the post-1989 age of liberal triumphalism grinds towards its welcome and long overdue end. So we're going to proceed chronologically and um, I'd like to um, talk first, obviously, about the, the decade that followed uh, 1917. Um, and the opportunities that were recorded to artists and writers, etc. Um, I think we have a lot of expertise on film in the room, but uh, there are astonishingly 
vibrant movements in literature, poetry, drama, music, visual art, pretty much across the board. So, um, Maria, I wondered if you had any responses to my uh, my preamble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thanks. Uh, um yeah, you mentioned that uh, there was a lot of discussions on uh, constructivism, avant-garde, on the first decade after the uh, uh, revolution, and it started well, uh, but we need to reassess it. And I agree uh, that there was a lot of texts and publications, but uh, when I started to work on uh, the um, first decade philosophy, art, and literature. So I took the approach, uh, the kind of holistic approach to look at many of these practices all together, uh, because I believe uh, they were all uh, linked uh, to one another mm. and um, uh, quite, quite opposite to what uh, we have now when all fields of knowledge are so separated and um, uh, you have different disciplines, and even these disciplines have subdivisions. So after the revolution, nothing like that actually existed. And the idea after 1917 was the reformulation of knowledge, I believe, in Marxist terms. So everything, including art, literature, poetry, and music, became this ambitious, uh, ambitious project of uh, rethinking um a knowledge uh in 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 uh that uh terms and that's uh that's why i feel uh that um the traditional for example if you take art and cinema uh the narrative in many of the publications especially in western europe was a kind of to see this art production and art practices uh, together with the developments of um, modernist uh, art in, in West Europe at the same time. So, and then what you have is the idea um, that early constructivism, for example, follows or supplements or in dialogue with similar developments in the West. But then suddenly something happens. Something happens in the late uh, 20s when artists like Rochenko and early 30s, uh, Lisitsky and others suddenly, um, suddenly became part of a uh, Stalinist uh, pro project. They traveled to, I don't know, to sides of uh, Lambert camps and film or document, and the same is with Zigavertov. And so you have a kind of nice, uh, very good uh, Western early constructivist moment with aesthetics uh, which close to modernism. They discussed formal issues such as what is uh, surface, what is line, uh, you know, and, and then they developed some some kind of artworks based on that and then suddenly they they became bad artists and they became stalinist so i think um, i think this is really what uh need to be challenged this narrative in art history and and it also fails down to many cold war narratives about the split between early nice experimentations and then the evil uh, stalinist uh, transition 
So I believe if we approach it differently, looking at uh, the developments of art, literature and many other aspects of post-revolutionary society altogether, we may have uh, better tools to understand that the project was not so much even about development of uh, aesthetical art issues, but actually uh, the development of completely different uh, production of knowledge and that we have to may look how those art practices link to political movements, which is often overlooked, especially in relation to early constructivists. For example, uh, it is very well known that uh, early constructivist uh, artists had a strong link to prolet cult movement, which is... Um, a movement called, uh, which the leader of this movement was Alexander Bogdanov, uh, proletarian culture and uh, independent sovereign organization for proletarian artists and um, um, activists. So many of, of uh, constructivists worked in close collaboration with Bogdanov and this is overlooked. And uh, there we can see the will to change the entire society to build uh, something different than actually just to to discuss formal issues in art. And in my research, I tried to look at this alternative genealogy, which helped me to bridge politics, philosophy, theory of art uh, in relation to post-revolutionary knowledge production. And I think for me, at least... Uh, to, res to respond to your idea why we have to revise. If you revise it in this way, I feel uh, we can find um, much more interesting way uh, to actually discuss how art and politics and knowledge were linked all together. And we can then return to this point again to discuss why it's meta and why uh, we kind of, why, why it's important today and what kind of what can we learn from from that? Um. Owen, you you looked to me like you wanted to come in. I didn't necessarily, but thank you for <laughs> thank you for dubbing me in. Um, I, I, I'm more or less in, a, in, in agreement with all of that, and I think one of the problems that, that people off, that, that sort of often find when trying to sort of um, approach this stuff from from a, from a more or less Marxist perspective is the need first to do this kind of debunking of sort of Cold War banalities of kind of like, you know, the sort of totalitarianism school and the kind of the, the sort of very black white morality that comes with that um, before you can then talk about these things on an imminent level, which is very frustrating. I mean, the, the kind of the, 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 the book I wrote on this on this period was very much about Taylorism mm. and about the the, the sort of. Uh, the, the underlying interest in uh, American scientific management and industrial discipline and, and lots of sort of quite uncomfortable stuff on the part of these sort of heroic and saintly avant-gardists. And I didn't necessarily want to do this as this kind of like, it was always terrible and this proves it. Here they are, they're into Henry Ford and so forth. Because that's, that's aside from being boring, it's, I don't think it's particularly true. Um, but that's that's a significant part of it and you have to grapple with that and you have to reckon with it and what what was it in Taylorism that they found interesting you know was their idea that you could reconcile somehow like Taylorism with um with Marxism in any way plausible you know what was it just a sort of thing of like taking power away from 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 workers on the shop floor was it just the aestheticization of uh, you know of sort of quite grim labor processes you know but before you can say that you have to sort of argue with idiots which is always quite <laughs> quite tiresome 
yes, and a problem in fields far beyond uh, studies of the Soviet avant-garde in the 20s and 30s. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these... Um, a lot of the sort of arguments you're talking about really do serve to flatten both the sort of political and intellectual uh, diversity of the Soviet avant-garde in this period. I mean, if we if we isolate film for a moment, um, you know, we can find some astonishingly um, kind of thorough or direct um, explorations of, of Marxist ideology and dialecticalism. Uh, but we can also find uh, films such as Bed and Sofa by Abram Room, which um, ask some fairly ser um, sort of searching questions of, you know, what type of citizens were living under um, under the new um, new conditions. Obviously, um, Ziga Vertov's work sort of moved from to, uh, the famous city film, uh, Man with a Movie Camera, through to... Um, works like Three Songs of Lenin, which are more kind of explicit about its commitment to Well, that, that doesn't totally work as a temporality in so far as, um, you know, Man of a Movie Camera is quite unique, even in Vertov's work, for the the lack of explicit politics. Actually, yeah. there is there is very much a, a politics in Man of a Movie Camera that's very, very linked to actually the turn in the late 1920s towards the five-year plans and so forth. Um, but in, in that, because it's this, this kind of isolated experiment, if you look earlier on at, you know, the, at, at something like um, Stride Soviet or the 11th year, or um, it's particularly the Kino Pravda newsreels, um, you know, this, and again, this isn't necessarily a criticism of Vertov, but the, it's, a prop, it's propaganda from the start. There is a Vertov newsreel about the suppression of the Kronstadt rebellion and how mm. great it was. You know, I mean, it's there from, from the start, which is not necessarily a problem, but I think it, it sort of complicates the, 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 the particular narrative of, like, good 20s, bad 30s. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I believe you can find uh, elements of uh, in productivist aesthetics, for example, in early constructivism is, is already there. And uh, the, the notion of life building, uh, the, the forceful re re reconstruction uh, of uh, biopolitics, you can, if you can use the more contemporary term, and Taylorism is part and parcel of, of that. So all these weird, uh, not pleasant elements, I agree they're from the beginning, uh, in in this art, in these films, uh, the question is uh, then um, how not to leap into another controversy to say, oh, this is from the beginning, mm. uh, have these evil elements. And once we discover them, then maybe it's not interesting any longer to to take this period into the account. So that would be another challenge for us to actually to think what uh, this archive means today. Yeah, I mean, I wondered if maybe um, I could home in for a couple of minutes on, I think, one of the most interesting uh, figures of the sort of 1920s, which is the, um, the poet and uh, possibly film director, definitely film writer and playwright Vladimir Mayakovsky, who, uh, of course, was already prominent by 1917 and had been a... A very, uh, a very loud, uh, very interesting voice within the Russian futurist movement, um, and you know, a real kind of proponent of, of various other avant-garde figures in the USSR. Had a very complicated relationship with the ruling party. Um, his sort of uh, pay to the revolution, 150 million 
uh, sort of epic poem um, was sort of dismissed by Lenin because he felt that it would be too complex for the workers to understand. Um, and Natalie Lunacharsky, the People's Commissar for Education, uh, was a very strong defender of, um, of Mayakovsky and actually said that, quote, one should not deny works that are not works that are not sufficiently intelligible for every literate person. Um, Lunacharsky found it a kind of frustrating experience to deal with some of the uh, 1920s avant-garde's insistence on freedom of expression, um, in particular the, um, the futurist poet Vladimir Klebnikov asked for um, freedom of movement to be granted to poets and uh, found himself quite quickly not back. Um, but Mayakovsky was, was, was an object of... Um, of much discussion, and uh, Mayakovsky's plays moved uh, during the 1920s towards uh, a fairly pivotal work, I think, called The Bedbug, uh, which was produced in 1928, towards the end of the new economic policy period, which had allowed a sort of certain level of, um, of market capitalism as a transitional demand, a uh, transitional phase in the establishment of the new society. Uh, but the bedbug uh, focused in on a sort of quite decadent, fairly bourgeois individual called Prosipkin, um, who is thought to have died but actually disappears in a, in a fire uh, and is frozen and reawoken 50 years later in the, uh, the new society um, and is quite kind of troubled by, by the sort of level of conformity that is, that is imposed uh, on citizens, and you know, Mayakovsky's playing quite a kind of ambiguous game with the figure of Prosipkin because he is fairly unsympathetic, really. Um, but but this this play, uh, you know, caused considerable consternation um, in the USSR at this point, um, and made Mayakovsky kind of a marked man. Um, two years later, he wrote a much more direct satire on sort of Soviet bureaucracy uh, with with the coming of sort of Stalin's seizure of absolute power um the bathhouse uh kind of got the backs up of uh, ra double p rap the russian organization of proletarian writers who were very critical of him uh at this point he was sort of practically forced to join the party and rap itself and committed suicide later that year uh referring to um both rap and a critic called ermolov who um who had been very critical of, of mayakovsky um, echoing sort of Trotsky's line on the futurists that they were kind of bourgeois bohemian nihilists. Uh, so Mayakovsky's death in 1930, I think, sort of anticipated some of the um, some of the uh, effects of the Stalinization of, of art and culture in the USSR. Although Mayakovsky himself was sort of canonized by Stalin in 1935, who said that Mayakovsky was the greatest and most important work of our Soviet epoch, and the less quoted part of his uh, his sense on Mayakovsky, which was that indifference to his work and memory is a crime. Uh, I'm not sure who was uh, who was prosecuted specifically for being indifferent to Mayakovsky, uh, but I wondered if we could maybe talk more about the uh, the transition from the 20s to the 30s here. Um, okay. Um, well, I mean that 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 transition um, is interesting, partly because at that point, I think the sort of simmering disputes between um, realists, um, constructivists, and between the sort of and the fellow travellers in in, in in Soviet culture sort of spilled over into kind of fairly open warfare at that point, um, and in many ways that wasn't wholly one-sided. I mean, you had at that point. 
Um, the Stefarius groups that we would now call avant-garde um, assembled into the October group who had their manifesto published in Pravda at the end of the 20s. So, you know, there was a, this, it couldn't get anything much more official mm-hmm. than that in many ways. Um, but at the same time, there was enormous harassment of, of, of people like Mayakovsky, um, particularly for those plays. Um, so... The sort of party, I think, had, 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 I think, many ways quite wisely a sort of, a sort of mediating role rather than the kind of we come down particularly on one side or the other um, for most of the 20s. And then I sort of think at that point it became, like, there was a much more obvious favouring of people that were interested in um, a rather more sort of imperial aesthetic. Um, and then by 1932, you have the kind of winding up of all the various independent artistic associations, which includes, as well as the various constructivist associations, also the um, more sort of retardataire groups, like the, you know, the Association of, of, of Proletarian Writers, the Association of Realist Painters. All, and th- th- these are all also wound up into large kind of all-union um, institutions. Um, but what then happens is then the kind of consecration of socialist realism, uh, which is... A deeply weird term in many ways. Like, and I think with lots of um, lots of things like this, the kind of the, the model that the party had as it kind of moved from, I think, kind of presiding over culture and letting it do its own thing within limits to pushing a particular line, um, was an obsession with the novel and that kind of like holistic culture that Maria was, was describing. I think becomes significantly less holistic at that point. I think it's 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 you know if you look at a lot of sort of Stalinist texts on on culture, the novel is almost always seems to be their model, um, which is, I, I think, is sort, of, is sort of stepping back from all of this. And of course, that realism makes sense when you're talking about novels. Everyone knows what a realist novel is. Mm. What's a realist building? <laughs> and then you had all of these, you know, en- enormously talented and interesting architects faced with this question of like, what's a realist building? What on earth is a socialist realist building? We have to now design socialist realist buildings. Um, and quite weird things happen as a consequence. Um, I mean, are there any kind of examples in architecture that you'd like to elaborate on? Um, well, none of them are particularly realistic, mm. and I think that 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 sort of the probably the most interesting texts, at least at least for me, or at least the most coherent texts on socialist realism, are those from Maxim Gorky. And Gorky's sort of story is, in many ways, an interesting parallel to Mayakovsky's, in that Gorky, um, you know is obviously very sympathetic to the revolution, but much more kind of favours a sort of coalition left-wing government. Um, you know, is publishing one of the only sort of newspapers critical of the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. Then he buggers off to Italy to, you know, swan about. And the Bolsheviks have this enormous kind of campaign to, like, convince Gorky to come back, which he then does to enormous fanfare, the, uh, 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 you know, uh, precisely in this period, in this kind of transition period. And Gorky's whole thing is, like... We're not going to show what is, but what will be. And the architecture of the Stalinist period is all about showing what will be, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, this transition from more experimental forms, such as documentary chronicles, some smaller forms in literature. If we talk about literature, there would be um uh, yeah a lot of documentary genres and and critique of novel in particular because novel was uh, for many from Pilniak to Andrei Platonov and many others the critique of the novel starts precisely from the assumption that in the post revolutionary reality novel d- doesn't work 
we have to grasp uh, immediately what's going on and this immediacy instead of the bigger genre which mediates and which shows what will be, we have to show what it is and how people perceive revolution in this big, uh, diverse uh, place uh, such as such was uh, uh, Russian Empire, and uh, and this is interesting that instead of uh, instead of working on that, that the novel was for for many was hostile uh, genre, and then uh, and then they uh, you you see they return to this kind of uh, classics and conservatism, but within even the culture of twenties there were some peculiar figures like uh, Mikhail Lifshitz, for example who is a forgotten philosopher, but he was a friend of Georg Lukács in the 30s. Um, when Lukács was in Moscow, uh, they collaborated together. And in the 30s, Lifshitz was an editor of Literaturne Kritik, uh, which is li literary critique, I believe, in English. And um, they promoted uh, this sort of transition to more... Uh, to, to, to this kind of, I don't know, they, they were not precisely promoting socialist realism, they criticized Stalinism, but not from the perspective of the avant-garde, but from the perspective of thought position. So they criticized avant-garde for this empiricist immediacy, that it's uh, it's positivist uh, sort of movement, which want to grasp reality as it is, but uh, dialectical materialism teaches us that everything should be mediated. So in the discussion, what kind of uh, f actually more proper and more uh, communist uh, dialectical approach to art, culture and literature should be. And um, Andrei Platonov, for example, a quite famous writer, and now you see a lot of uh, translations in English uh, coming out, um, the Foundation Pit maybe is the most uh, famous anti-Stalinist novel of, of this writer. So he was also part of this movement. So again, if we complicate and, uh, this picture, we will see this kind of figures which would stay in between avant-garde and Stalinism mm -hmm. uh, as a sort position critical to both. And uh, the journal existed up until end of 30s and was uh, shuttered down also as a heretical dissident uh, journal uh, by the yeah by the end of uh, end of 30s. So yeah, I mean it's interesting the way you talk about sort of people who occupied positions between kind of avant-garde and Stalinism. Uh, I'm thinking of two figures in particular who you know by the kind of mid-1930s were huge international names who um, ended up walking a very awkward line between between those two positions. I'm thinking specifically of Sergei Eisenstein and Dmitry Shostakovich. Um, I mean, I don't know if, um, if any of you have anything you'd like to say about um, either of those figures. But, um, um, I guess I could say a little bit about Eisenstein. Um, I feel like he was more um, interested in the formalism and creating, doing what he could uh, and experimenting with the medium of film, which was a relatively new medium and uh, used very much by the state as a propaganda tool, and rightly so. Um, but uh, I feel like he fell out of favor after his um, October film, uh, which was released in 1927, I believe. Um, 
because of that formalism that he was interested in. So it didn't lend itself too easily to, uh, it no longer lent itself um, to be easily sort of manipulated by the state. Um, so he went off on a, for a couple of years on a lecture tour in Europe and um, tried his luck in Hollywood. And he was too um, experimental for Hollywood too. And um, he shot lots of footage in Mexico, which I don't believe he ever got to edit on his return to the Soviet Union. So um, he had a very um, fraught relationship, but later on in his career, he did um, sort of um, begin to toe the party line and uh, uh, made the films Alexander Nevsky and um, Ivan the Terrible. Um, and I think that's something that's, um, that sort of example is very much true for other artists working um, in the Soviet Union at the time. Tiga Vertov, uh, who uh, is also quite a renowned filmmaker, um, is sort of, we mentioned Man with a Movie Camera earlier, but his film Enthusiasm Symphony of the Donbass from 1930 is um, uh, quite interesting because it was made during Eisenstein's absence and within that time he began experimenting with um, sound and um, sound recording on location which hadn't been done up until that point and uh, there's, a, there's a story about how they had to cart this machinery down into the mines and on bass and um, it, took, it took a lot of manpower and all of these recordings were made onto the, um, on the sound track of the film strip which later had to be edited and took about 50 days to edit, supposedly. Um, so I guess my point is that, um, I don't know if it's a very helpful one, but I, I feel like um, there is that disconnect very much so between uh, what the avant-garde was doing and what the state expected of them. Sure. Um I sort of need to move the discussion on a bit now to um, the death of, of Stalin in 1953 and the, um, the famous uh, secret speech uh, given by Khrushchev uh, at the Soviet Congress in uh, 1953, which denounced... 1956, sorry, yes, of course, famously, 1956... Um, which denounced uh, what Khrushchev sort of presented as some of the worst excesses of Stalinism, and a sort of cultural thaw that uh, that happened afterwards, um, which has been given quite a lot of attention um, in terms of what came out of, I think, sort of Poland and, um, and Czechoslovakia in particular, but maybe slightly less of a sort of coherent narrative has been. Um, has been sort of presented and discussed uh, certainly in this country about what was happening in the Soviet Union itself um, I wondered if um, if any of you wanted to uh, kind of um, lead us on on the um, the sort of culture that followed Khrushchev's taking of power I've got a text that I've prepared that I'm, I'm happy to read Wonderful. Um, so <laughs> I feel free to butt in if you like so the first avant-garde which predates the revolutions of 1917 which we've already discussed opposed the salon and it operated in, in opposition to the canonical art context rather than being guided by politics as such that's my personal opinion I feel um, what the revolution promised these artists in return for destroying bourgeois tastes and cultural tendencies was freedom of expression career prospects and new patronage um, in the form of commissions. The avant-garde was, to borrow a phrase, the king of the carnival, celebrated for a short time before being cast down and denied further agency. In contrast, the second avant-garde, 
which began operating uh, after Khrushchev's thaw, or during Khrushchev's thaw, uh, was working in opposition to socialist realism, uh, what had become the official art of the regime after 1932. Vitaly Komar, co-founder of the Sots Art, a movement that subverted the aesthetic aesthetic language of socialist realism, described this as the moment when the era of class struggle had mutated into an era of the struggle between contexts. The artist also considers a direct connection between Khrushchev's iconoclasm of Stalinist imagery and Komar's own development as an artist. In conversation with Ben-Uri chairman David Glasser, Komar noted the similarity between Stalin's infamous iconography and that of the Mona Lisa, which was displayed much in the same way for Leonardo da Vinci's 500th birthday celebrations in 1952. He also draws parallels between Khrushchev's thought and the Christian destruction of Greek art, Lenin and Stalin's destruction of Christian churches, the iconoclasm of Russian dissidents who wanted to destroy statues of Lenin, and the KGB's retaliation to the Bolayevo exhibition, otherwise known as the Bulldozer exhibition, uh, which happened on the 15th of September 1974. During Khrushchev's thought, Art books and magazines from countries such as Yugoslavia, Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Albania and Germany began to appear in Moscow. These publications educated and influenced many unofficial artists like Komar, Alexander Melamid, Oskar Rabin, Ilya Kabakov um, and others, giving birth to the Moscow Conceptualist School. With the Soviet Union being in constant state of becoming, unofficial artists were driven to act in the moment and reclaim the present with happenings, actions and other aesthetic developments such as exhibiting outside. Yeah. Uh, Maria? Yeah, uh, yeah that's, um, that's true that after the 56, you see uh, this interesting developments of I would say uh, the dissident movement, which would strongly reject, at first maybe not strongly, uh, would question at first uh, the communist ideology as such, but then gradually will move to to kind of um, maybe not anti-communist precisely, but you know the the critical position, and this is very well known. Uh, narrative, I think, that uh, after the Stalinism, this questioning of the entire project would be dominant. But um, I think it's interesting also to discuss uh, what's usually less known. Uh, although recently there are, again, few publications on, on that matter as well. Uh, I refer to this Lifshitz uh, philo philosopher called Lifshitz. Um, and what what is interesting in in this context that it's it's really true that only few philosophers, artists, uh, intellectuals remained on the side on on the left side. So normally many people transition to liberal position, critical position. But for me, uh, it's kind of interesting to discuss those uh, who uh, uh, the, the last Bolsheviks to use a Chris Marker um, kind of definition of uh, the, the filmmaker uh, Medvedkin, who uh, who remained Bolshevik until uh, yeah we can say Bolshevik until the very end, uh, until the late 80s. So there were few people. A uh, few people like that, and for them it was the most uh, difficult, actually, 
to uh, to be at, uh, at at one hand critical towards official party line and at the same time to remain on the left. And Lifshitz, uh, perhaps uh, one one of these people who continue to write critical essays and very controversial. For example, his uh, he wrote this this quite uh, aggressive manifesto against modernism and modernist art. Uh, and I believe it's going to be published in English uh, for the first time, maybe next year. And um, uh, David Reif, uh, uh, theorist and curator, uh, uh, translates it for historical materialism. So, but the, the, and it was very controversial book. It caused a lot of critique because for all uh, this uh, intelligence and uh, dissidence, there was rejection of modernism meant that he supported again uh, the conservative uh, socialist art but it was not the case so there is this kind of subtle nuance uh, which uh, singles out Lifshitz uh, from the official party line uh, other example could be uh, Evel Telyenkov uh, who who also who was a philosopher and who started in late 50s uh, as a, with a small uh, research or gr group with other philosophers, and then they did this public statement about uh, in Moscow State University, and they criticized uh, dialectical materialism, the official doctrine of the dialectical materialism, then they were kicked out. And Ilyenkov was always balanced uh, between the official sort of was a mediator of the official and non-official tendencies. And uh, it's also important to note uh, that uh, from 60s, he participated in very important and interesting project. Uh, he was a teacher and um, he, he was actively involved in a first uh, boarding uh, school for deaf and blind children and he saw it as a retreat uh, from the official sort of uh, official philosophy so he saw it as a retreat and this school was pioneering nobody did this before and uh, he also saw it as a political and philosophical project because by means of showing that disability is not uh, something abnormal or to, to criticizing the traditional discourse, which were, you know, were common to see it in these conservative terms, he saw that he's fighting precisely this kind of positivist empiricist line, which he linked actually to the beginning of 20s and to this avant-garde culture. So, I mean, it's uh, the, this context is really interesting, and now few people actually are doing, exploring, and researching uh, this context in, in, in the Western Europe, and I think that's what may be going to be more and more interesting to discuss. Mm. I mean, at the same time as there being this um, sort of, you know, there the, the, the being these sort of interesting sort of late Marxist figures within the USSR, one of the trends that I found kind of curious in the last 10 years, both Within the former USSR and 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 in, and, and in Britain, is the increasing interest in the official culture, not not even not not necessarily the sort of the sort of nonconformist art or the kind of like, you know, sort of uh, more rigorous Marxist like Ilyenkov, but but in, in sort of stuff that at the time was considered enormously banal, you know, mosaics, um, sculptural reliefs, um, public buildings, all of these sorts of things, which, you know, particularly after. 1956 were 
um, reasonably experimental, but not not massively so. Um, uh, uh, becoming very, really, really rather fashionable. There are now, you know, dozens of books of like sort of Soviet mosaics, Soviet reliefs, you know, cosmic Soviet buildings, Soviet bus stops, and so forth. And what's funny about this is that people then try and make the dissident story, try and do the dissident story on hugely unsuitable material. Um, you know, I've read texts that have argued that, you know, the, the, the sort of gigantic theatres from the 80s or, or bus stops or, or you know, or sort of sculptural reliefs of heroic workers flying off into space are all in some way dissident. And it, this is, of course, absolutely nonsensical. Um, you know, the, 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 if there's anything that was the sort, of, the sort of state propaganda of the time in the most direct way, it was, it was this sort of stuff. And I think that that... That, that kind of increased interest in this totally official, totally conformist art um, is, is sort of suggests, I think, a, a sort of interest in the sort of banal side of Soviet life um, that would have been impossible during the Soviet period precisely because it was banal, but now it's looking increasingly sort of exotic. And I don't think that's a thing that, that solely exists within sort of a sort of Western gaze looking at it and going, oh, wonderful, look at this picture of like woman holding Sputnik aloft, isn't it lovely? But also there's a sort of nostalgia within those countries for a sort of... Um, for this sort of technocratic, positivist, optimistic, um, future-oriented culture that was that, that, that was enormously dominant and state-sponsored thank you um you're listening to suite 212 here on resonance 104.4 fm london's best of brightest radio station today i'm with maria chehanadsky Ilya rogachevsky and owen hathley and we're discussing the cultural legacies of the russian revolution of october 1917 and how it's perceived in the West. Um, I think the conversation we've just been having about the Thor has led very nicely into the uh, final part of the show that I wanted to talk about. I mean, we could talk about this all night, I think, but um, unfortunately we only have 15 minutes to talk about the reception of um, and the reconsideration of, of this work in the West, and particularly the retrospectives that have come with the 100th anniversary of um, October 1917 um, here in the UK. So I wondered if we could talk a bit about the um, the sort of ideological climate that followed the um, the um, the end of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and of course the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, the sort of you know the very sort of liberal ideological climate or neoliberal ideological climate um, that this work has been considered in for the last sort of 25 or or so years. Me? You. You're looking at me. <laughs> um, do you want us to talk about the exhibitions? Please. Wow. Deep um, breath. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so many. I can't even remember now. Um, the Royal Academy, obviously, is the big one. Um, I'm sure there will be some listeners that have gone there to see it. Um, the Royal Academy one was annoying because it had a really good premise, which was we're going to reconstruct the 1932 um exhibition of 25 years of Soviet art. Uh, again, which is a, a great time to pick because you have this, um, the, you know, this sort of turnover from this sort of open, relatively open culture to, 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 a, to a, a closed one at that, at that precise point. And you have both in the exhibition. You had a room on Malevich and you had a room on Petra Vodkin. And, you, you know, there's sort of symbols of, of, of each. Um, unfortunately, it had been curated by... Well, I don't. 
<laughs> I don't know who it was. Uh, they made a terrible mess. Keep this um, off com friendly. Yeah, yeah um, I will keep it off com friendly. Um, it was just, um, you know, the, the, the unbelievably patronising um, wall texts. Um, you know, just um, the, the sort of need to sort of shoehorn atrocity into everything. You know, assuming that if you don't do this, the reader might think that everything was wonderful. Um, and I think, as a viewer, rather would assume that everything is wonderful. That's a strange clip. Um, and of course, I don't think you you need to be told of a lot of art of the early 1930s as propaganda. Of course, it's propaganda. And also, it made you know there are various historical inaccuracies. I have rudimentary Russian, and I can see mistakes. There was, in fact, millions died. That was my, that was the highlight. Um, and there was the room called Eternal Russia. Um, which was all about kind of images of, of you know, the, the, the sort of deep Slavic soul, about half of which was taken up of pictures of shtetls in Belarus, um, which was an interesting idea of what eternal Russia is. I think Russian nationalists would be interested to know that that's, that's the, a picture of the eternal picture of their country. Um, so, you know, the, the kind of, the, 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 there was a dark room in which you went to see um, pictures of uh, victims of Stalinism. And I think, Within certain limits, we could all have exhibitions like this. Every exhibition on 19th century art in Britain will have, you know, a room on colonialism and the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every exhibition on, on American art in the 1960s will have like a room full of like napalms, Vietnamese children. You know, it's just it's moron. It's a moronic way of approaching these things. Not not necessarily that one has to has to sort of soft soap this stuff and 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 not talk about the atrocities that it frequently cheerled for, particularly um, in the collectivization of ag- ag- agriculture in the early 1930s. But you could do that without being stupid. And it rather failed in that. (laughs) Yes. um, I wondered if maybe it would be more interesting then to talk about um, post-Soviet artists coming out of um, former Soviet countries. Uh, I'm a big fan, Example, for example, of the the sculptor and film artist Diamantus Narkovicheus. Apologies to any Lithuanian listeners for my pronunciation, but... um, big fan of his work which deals very interestingly with the legacy of the soviet period and particularly the kind of removal or otherwise of um of soviet statues from from lithuania and elsewhere um but also uh, i'm interested in figures like kind of victor pelevin or vladimir sorokin who've been part of the uh transition um to sort of post-soviet literature or indeed uh you know the voina group Chtodlat, um, and even uh, Vladislav Surkov, who Adam Curtis fans will uh, will know, has um, has had some influence. Um, also, Curtis claims on the uh, the Putin government and of sort of bringing um, avant-garde uh, cultural techniques into um, methods of governance, uh, which you know I think should be approached with considerable scepticism. But um, I wondered if any of you wanted to to talk a bit about the sort of post-Soviet um, cultural climate uh, within Russia. I mean, the only thing I really know about Voyna is that wonderful phallus that they drew on the bridge, which, uh, you know, when the bridge raised, uh, sort of uh, presented itself and was quickly painted over. Um, <laughs> to the FSB's headquarters in the Petersburg, rather crucially. Right. FSB, can you just... The um, secret police, yeah. as they currently exist. Um, I mean, I'm not... Um, as well researched into this as uh, you guys are, but I could say that uh, Pussy Riot has been a very sort of influential um, protest group. Well, uh, an, an artist collective that work within the sort of the same aesthetics as a um, 
uh, as a political party almost. And um, I feel like they have made a dent more so in the West than they probably have in Russia. Um, partly to do with their activism and the fact that they have, uh, you know, they they were made martyrs of. Um, and uh, they're image and music is relatively easy to market I think over here Ray you have strong opinions on Pussy Riot <laughs> you do I do she does yeah, ah. yeah I do <laughs> but maybe it's uh, yeah I mean I wrote this article in 2013 when everybody was so optimistic about Pussy Riot uh, linking them to this kind of uh, controversial uh, culture of uh, what we call Aktionism, which is action art, I believe you can translate it like that, uh, which uh, would play with a lot of um, sort of bringing together different uh, ideological opposite to each other perspectives and um, playing with actually sexist, uh, very sexist uh, images of what a woman uh, in activist thing sh should be. And and actually now you can see that uh, um, the main figure in this group, uh, Nadezhda Talakonikova, she kicked out anybody else and privatized the the label of uh, of Pussy Riot. So even her close collaborator Masha, I don't remember her son, but she was also kicked out. So neither herself gets uh, gets a lot of money, I guess, uh, promoting uh, promoting herself and the brand uh, elsewhere abroad. But uh, it must be said that uh, partially, as far as I understand, this money goes for her human rights uh, activities in, in Russia. But, but still, it's a very controversial project, um, uh, which uh, which was linked to Vaina and this kind of style of using in a very um, controversial way resources, money, playing with right wing, with liberal, with, in a postmodernist way, in a carnavalesque way, bringing different ideologies together. Uh, it's deeply rooted in, in, I think, in this transitional period from 90s to 2000s when the left... Uh, were weak and uh, it was easily mixed uh, or different ideologies were easily mixed together but now we've seen it here with the alt-right which also mixing uh, uh, claiming they are actually not fascist mm. but we, we, we see how uh, this is very close to actually post-Soviet uh, culture of mixing things up together and that's why the good reference for alt-right in US and in Britain is uh, uh, Eduard Limonov and uh, the Dugin, who who is uh, the founder of really bizarre uh, Euro uh, Eurasianist uh, kind of movement, which mixing Heidegger with more kind of neo-fascist uh, philosophers and bringing uh, old 19th century right-wing also Russian philosophers, all this like b together and and this mixture produces this sort of very strange postmodernist uh, fusion of left and right. And I believe Pussy Right, of course, is not on that spectrum, but mm -hmm. uh, that uh, this is really a phenomenon of this post-Soviet um, uh, collapse of uh, of the left uh, and uh, 
it's just a critical remark uh, about, about them. Um, yeah, we've got five minutes left, so we obviously need to start uh, drawing the discussion to a close. Um, I mean, I wondered if maybe for a couple of minutes, I think we've got time, if there's anything to say about the role of nostalgia in post-Soviet art and culture. Um, if I can quickly add to that. I think this sort of nostalgia was really a big uh, topic in uh, post-Soviet art in early 2000s. Yeah. And there was a very good show of Victor, Victor Mizian, a curator from uh, Russia, uh, who did uh, Progressive Nostalgia exhibition, uh, which traveled as far as I remember, which were in few places in Baltics and maybe somewhere else, where Narkevichus were presented and um, many other artists who de dealt with the trauma and uh, with the problem of transition. But now, because of uh, the war with Ukraine and a different uh, geopolitical, uh, geopolitical actually agenda, we seen what we see now. I believe is the dismantling of this post-Soviet space. It's actually uh, we don't know what's going to happen, uh, but because of the war between Russia and Ukraine, for example, and because of war in, in Syria. We're living in slightly different context at the moment, I believe. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I mean, it's not it's not my nostalgia, so I can't I I I, I, I can't really authoritatively comment on it. I think a, a lot of the nostalgia for, I think the Thor period in particular, is extremely close to um, the sort of nostalgia for the same period in Western Europe, and for more mm -hmm. or less the same reasons. Um, you know, a nostalgia for um, full employment, you know, sort of technocratic optimism, um, you know, a sort of modernist public culture. Um, and I think the further we get from the Cold War, the more the, the, more the two sides sort of resemble each other. Um, that, that what sort of, you know, that, that, that a housing estate designed in the, you know, in the 1970s, you know, either sort of end would look fairly similar um and i think you you can take that only only so far but i think there is an as an aspect of that that could be a sort of critique of certain certain aspects of the present i think that's the sort of optimistic way of looking at it yeah i i've maybe uh, just have one little thing to add uh, maybe just returning to the royal academy exhibition for a moment uh, i think uh, there's one work in there uh, called the Latatlin, uh, which is a sort of um, a winged aeroplane that could be used um, as ubiquitously as a bicycle. And I feel like, and it never worked. And I feel like it embodies the sort of uh, whole Soviet project quite well and the nostalgia related to it. Um, it's a bicycle for everybody, but nobody could ride it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we're going to have to uh, wrap up a conversation which, you know, I think all three of us would have been, all four of us even, would have been happy to continue. <laughs> That's a terrible Freudian slip, isn't it? Thank you. Um, <laughs> all four answer? of us. Uh, I think me, I'm the sort of supposedly <laughs> invisible presenter, but here I am uh, shooting my mouth off. Um, so it just remains for me to, um, obviously, having corrected that, uh, I want to thank Sarah at Resonance 104.4 FM for producing the show. I want to thank 
Owen Hathley, Maria Chehanadsky and Ilya Rogachevsky for joining me here today. Uh, we'll be back on the third Monday of October. Uh, well, I'll be back uh, with a very special guest who's to be announced. Um, and you can find this show and the previous show at soundcloud.com slash sweet underscore 212. That's S-U-I-T-E. Uh, and you can also find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>